Welcome to Blue Dot, a look at our place in space. I'm Dave Schloem. Northern California is home to some of the greatest biodiversity found in North America, and one of its true treasures is the Klamath Mountain region. The Klamaths cover much of the northwest corner of the state and up into southern Oregon. If you missed part one of our special two-part look at the Klamaths, be sure to check that episode out at our website, mynspr.org. In our concluding episode, we're joined once again by Michael Kaufman, co-editor and publisher of the Klamath Mountains, A Natural History. He's our guide and co-host. Later on in the show, Michael and I will be joined by his co-editor, Justin Garwood, to talk about the incredible diversity of wildlife in the Klamath region. Justin, who grew up in the small town of Lewiston on the edge of one of the Klamath's most beautiful mountain ranges, the Trinity Alps, works in the region as an environmental scientist for the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. But first up, we examine the amazing forests of the Klamath Mountains with two Cal Poly Humboldt scientists, Lucy Kerhulis and Rosemary Sheriff. Lucy is a professor in the Forestry and Wildland Resources Department at the University, and Rosemary is a professor there in the Department of Geography, Environment, and Spatial Analysis. Lucy Kerhulis and Rosemary Sheriff, welcome to Blue Dot. Thanks very much. Yeah, thanks for inviting us. Yeah, it's great to have you. And before uh, we get to some questions from um, Michael, uh, I'd, I'd like to ask you, Rosemary, you, you have a dendroecology lab. Could you briefly tell us what that is? Sure. Um, well, it always or nearly always involves tree ring analysis, but we do a lot of ecological work rather than just dendrochronology where we're reconstructing uh, tree rings over time or with climate. We're looking at um, a lot of ecological questions. So just briefly, drought, fire history, changes in forest systems, and along with climate variability. And I know you both are quite familiar with my co-host for this special episode, uh, Michael Kaufman. So I'm going to turn it over to him for the first question. Yeah, great. So Rosemary, we're going to start with you and, and uh, focus a little bit on climate of the Klamath Mountains. And Robin, you could share a few things that you find unique about the climate of the Klamath Mountains. Sure. Well, I think the location of the Klamath um, lends itself to the uniqueness and the variability that we see in terms of climate. So the adjacency to the coastline and our dominant western storm systems, but also the interaction with the really complex topography. So if you'd like, I can hit a few highlights of, of various things. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. Okay, well, one thing is that within the Klamaths, we have a lot of variability in particular with precipitation. So on our coastal area, uh, the coastal Klamath area supports really wet rainforests. And then we begin to get orographic effects. So a lot of higher amounts of precipitation actually occur just upslope from the coast. And then as we get into the complex topography of the um, Klamaths on the Eastern side and some interior areas, we get much drier conditions as um, our weather systems move over those mountains. So they support chaparral and other mixed hardwood conifer and other forest and vegetation systems, which I know will be discussed in other um, contexts. Um, just a few more things. I'd say the bulk of our precipitation in our snowpack around 40% comes in pretty few large storms from the West, bringing what has been called atmospheric rivers of precipitation. But actually on the eastern side of the Klamath, which um, 
really is part of the uniqueness is that we actually also get southwesterly winds and bringing waste warm precipitation and the elevation really plays a really large role in the variability of precipitation that's received. The greatest precipitation, as I mentioned, occurs inland off the coast of the western Klamath Mountains in the most northern area of California and then southern Oregon. And I wanted to hit a highlight of an interesting and telling story about weather variability um, that we wrote about in the natural history book in the climate chapter, which retells the story of the in quotes, mother of all storms that was recorded at a fire lookout station that was built in 1923 above Gasky, California, which is in very far Northern California. A friend of ours, a friend of Humboldt's, a friend of our regions, Michael Furness, was tasked at the time working for the Forest Service managing a series of monitoring stations. And um, the station that he was, one of the stations, the one above Gasky, recorded over 80 inches of rain in December of 1981. That's a lot of rain. It's a record for California. And then in the following month, um, January 1982, there was over 23 inches in 24-hour period. And eventually, his record was um, found out from the National Weather Station, and they recorded and looked at all station data across the United States and then began to title it the mother of all storms for the US. And the entire water year actually had over 255 inches of rain, which is still a continental US record that stands. So that just highlights the fact that we have this incredible amount of precipitation and it's highly variable. Um, and as you move inland, we would have seen much lower precipitation because of the variability and uniqueness. I read that section on the, the mother of all storms. That was really interesting. Uh, 1982 was an El Nino year, and I remember it quite well. Lots of snow in the Sierra Nevada and Cascades. Um, you also did some interesting stuff about lightning strike data. I'd like to know something more also about that, because uh, lightning is also something that's very characteristic for the Klamaths. Yeah, that thanks for that because I wanted to highlight that. Um, one of the things that I did as part of working on this chapter was I contacted the NOAA Weather Forecasting Office and the Medford office um, does work with lightning and thunderstorm activity. And so they nicely carved out some of their historical data with the map of the Klamath region. And then we were we were you know then able to analyze some of the data. And so what we can see um, about lightning and thunder storm activity is that it's it's pretty interesting in that there's some really consistent trends over time and uh, seasonally. So the records since the 1980s show consistent patterns of the highest lightning activity. It tends to occur actually in the second week of July, and it's really over 50% of the lightning that occurs during that week. And in particular, from 4 to 6 p.m. at high elevation. So maybe not the best week to be at high elevation. And it seems to be pretty consistent uh, year to year. So that's that was really one of the interesting things that we found. So don't plan your backpacking trip then. Yeah, I actually think Michael and I have a, um, two projects going during that week. So I was just going to say, Rosemary, <laughs> we timed week. it perfectly. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Okay, well, you know, that leads to a question. You both study forest ecology, and as we've learned from Michael, uh, the the amazing conifer diversity in the Klamaths. How, how, what kind of role has does climate play on the on the diversity of forests you find in the Klamath region? Well, absolutely, and you know, if we had a visual map of the um, 
climate variability across the region, we could overlay some of the conifer diversity as well. So it's certainly not only related to the complex topography and the unique geology, but it also really relates to that microclimate effect um, of some of the patterns that I mentioned before. So absolutely, climate plays a big role, both temperature and precipitation and the aridity. Well, Lucy, I'd like to ask you about some of your work because you do something you know that sounds really cool to begin with. You, you climb trees a lot. Uh, I'd like to know about some of your scientific research that you do. You know, why do you climb trees? What what is that all about? Thanks for your interest in that. Um, yeah, I got into climbing trees. Um, I did my master's at Humboldt, um, Humboldt State University back then, with Steve Sillett climbing and learned how to climb trees from him. So, kind of opened up a whole world of canopy science. Some of the work that I've been involved with uh, climbing trees has been to look at tree physiology, kind of the mechanics and nuts and bolts of how trees work, especially giant trees like coast redwood. Um, and then another component of climbing trees um, has been to investigate kind of the life up in the canopy. So looking at epiphytes, um, plants growing on plants, and then also um, trying to look at some of the critters that live in the canopy. Can you give us some examples of some of the plants that grow on plants that you find up there? Yeah, um, it's pretty neat. So up in these, you know, giant crowns of trees here in the coastal region of the Klamath, the lowland areas, um, we have, you know, the tallest forests on earth. So we've got redwood and Douglas fir, um, Sitka spruce. These are kind of some of the main host trees as far as conifers go, where we see a lot rich epiphyte communities. And then there's also a bunch of um, hardwoods locally that are, are good hosts for epiphytes. And those are some of the oaks and um, like Oregon white oak and California black oak, um, red alder and big leaf maple are some of the big ones that come to mind. And within these large crowns here on the kind of temperate rainforest, um, there are different pockets of kind of microclimates within the crown. So typically these kind of gradients are such that higher up in the crown, you have a lot more light and a lot more exposure to wind kind of in the outer crowns of the trees. If you're thinking of a hardwood, like a maple. So the outer crown or the top of a conifer is going to have a lot more light and it's also going to be more desiccating due to kind of more exposure to wind. So you'll typically find more lichens growing up in those types of environments. They're more tolerant of those desiccating conditions. And then lower down in the crowns of conifers or in the interior portions of the crowns with the hardwoods, you'll get kind of um, more bryophyte communities of epiphytes. So those would be your leafy liverworts, which you've probably seen, but just thought they were mosses, um, and then mosses. And sometimes you'll have ferns there too. Um, yeah, and with the lichens, they're typically making up the bulk of the diversity within tree crowns. Um, and you can have lots of different types of lichens. There's crustose lichens, fruticose lichens, foliose lichens, chlorolichens, cyanolichens, which fix nitrogen. So lichens are super diverse um, group of epiphytes. And then for the bryophytes, um, they're not quite as diverse with the mosses and the leafy liverworts, um, but they are, they'll occupy more of the surface area. So they're kind of maybe visually more conspicuous than some of the lichens. Wow, Lucy, that's, it's so fascinating to hear this, these stories about what's way above our heads as we walk through the forest. Is there anything that you and, and Nick, who, you know, Nick is uh, Lucy's husband, 
Uh, they climb together. Is there any particular creature or animal that you've found in the canopy that's been exceptional? A good story there. So Nick, he we met at Humboldt. We both did our undergrads and masters here, and he's a wildlifer, and I studied plants. And when we were dating, I was like, hey, do you want to help me climb trees? And kind of the rest is history. But I've slowly had this mission to try to convert him to the light side. Um, so we've kind of struck a compromise where now he's studying some mammals within trees. So we've sort of combined worlds there. And we've been, um, we've got a project right now where we're looking at the Sonoma tree vole in these forests. And it's this adorable little kind of like red colored hamster that lives high up in the trees. Um, and they live on conifer needles, ex like exclusively. Um, they don't eat redwood, but they like Sitka spruce and Douglas fir. And they don't, the conifer leaves, they're so fragrant. If you crush them up, they smell really good. And that's because they have these resin ducks or resin canals going through the leaves and that's to deter herbivory. Um, and so these little um, Sonoma tree voles, which are a California endemic, um, I think they're listed as like a species of critical concern um, due to habitat loss of mature forests, but they don't like the resin ducks. So it's really cute. The way that we detect them, their nests is that you look for basically like their compost piles. Um, so they'll eat the conifer leaves like a corn of cob, like a, like a, yeah, a, a corn of cob, cob of corn, <laughs> eating it down one side and then the other, and then they'll discard the resin ducks. Um, and so you can find these refuse piles. Um, you can find them on the forest floor or you can find them when you're out climbing the tree. And that's kind of your heads up that, oh, look for a nest um, and you can find their nests. And they kind of look like if you've ever had pet hamsters, um, their nests, you can see in some of the more elaborate multi-generational nests. You'll, we call them vole castles. Um, you'll see these little like exit and entrance tunnels um, and almost like they have a little porch where they'll sit and nibble on the conifer leaves and then chuck the resin ducks. So those are a particularly endearing critter that lives up there. Amazing. And what's the highest you've found? I know you're climbing to 350 plus feet. What's the highest you've ever found a Sonoma tree vole? Do you know? Gosh, off the top of my head, I don't know. I'd say maybe like I found their nest, um, maybe around like 200 feet. Wow. Amazing. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. One other wow factor about the epiphytes is we did... Um, Sitka spruce, I think, is a really neat um, conifer that grows around here. Uh, it's really tall, grows over 300 feet. It's not the charismatic megaflora, though, of redwood, so it doesn't get all the all the press, but it's still a really neat tall conifer and it's just dripping with epiphytes. I think um, it's potato chippy bark is really good at capturing spores of epiphytes. And then also I think there must be something about its bark chemistry that's really benign um, and kind of hospitable for epiphyte establishment. And so we did one study on one Sitka spruce tree that was over 300 years old. It was over 300 feet tall. They grow really tall, really fast. So I, I say they have a fast and furious lifestyle, unlike redwood that might take, you know, 1500 years to grow 300 feet tall. But in this one Sitka spruce tree, we found 68 species of epiphytes, which was kind of a lot more than we were expecting to find in one tree. Wow. wow. Let's take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, my co-host Michael Kaufman and I will continue our conversation about the forests of the Klamaths with Cal Poly Humboldt professors Lucy Kerhulis and Rosemary Sheriff. I'm Dave Schlum, and you are listening to Blue Dot's special look at the Klamath Mountains. 
And we're back. If you're just joining us, welcome to part two of our special look at the Klamath Mountains, as I'm joined once again by Mark Kaufman, co-editor and publisher of the Klamath Mountains, A Natural History. Let's get back now to our conversation with Cal Poly Humboldt professors Lucy Kerhulis and Rosemary Sheriff, as we look at the forests of the Klamaths. Well, uh, you, uh, Lucy, and Rosemary are partners in a study that you're working on. It's a three-year research project. And um, Michael, you were, you were kind of involved in the genesis of that, right? Yeah, it's a really fun project and um, exciting to get to work with Cal Poly Humboldt professors like Lucy and Rosemary again. But we are tasked, this is some a partnership with the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, Cal Poly Humboldt. And myself, and we're tasked with mapping the vegetation communities across the Klamath Mountains. And it manifested itself with some CDFW money, but uh, really we needed this uh, partnership to make it all happen. So the California Native Plant Society from Sacramento uh, is kind of the lead on part of this project. And uh, we were able to bring in Lucy and Rosemary, and they brought in grad students and undergrad students. And we've been out, we've uh, almost a year in now, um, out mapping all the remote places, all the vegetation that lives in these remote places of the Klamath Mountains. And it's been very exciting to get this program off off the ground. And can you tell us, uh, either one of you, Lucy or Rosemary, a, a bit about the study and kind of where you're at and who all is involved in it? So I, I do want to highlight that Michael was really key at bringing us all together and has really been um, a glue to making this not the only one, but it's a really amazing team of people who are involved. And uh, I do want to highlight Michael's role in it. Um, and so where we are right now is we've done a, our first year summer's worth of really successful um, sampling. And we have currently, let's see, we have two graduate students and we've had a lot of undergraduates continuing to work on the um, project during the academic year and we're gearing up and starting to plan for the next season. Lucy, do you want to take, in, take it from there and add anything? Yeah. Um, so yeah, we've got, you know, we're collaborating, California Department of Fish and Wildlife is funding the work. And then we're collaborating with the California Native Plant Society, um, which has been really fun to get to work with them. And then the Bigfoot Trail Alliance with Michael Kaufman. And he kind of like was like the matchmaker here, putting us all together. And then the Cal Poly Humboldt. So it's Rosemary and I from Cal Poly Humboldt, and then also Eric Jules in biology. Um, and so it's a really fun team. And we're all really gung-ho about plants. And we've got three grad students on the project and kind of a team of the undergrads. Tell us about the actual study and what's the importance of it. Well, I was just going to add that um, Michael hit a little bit on the highlight, which is that although we know the Klamath Mountain ecoregion is an, you know, world-renowned biodiverse area, we really don't have great detail about you know, uh, the specifics of that that biodiversity. And in terms of thinking about climate changes, that's really a critical um, piece of the project is to the mapping piece of, of vegetation and um, rare um, plants and where they exist. So we can then sort of model where, you know, in places where we didn't sample where they might um, occur. Along with that, I wanted to highlight some of the projects that we will be working on with students. Um, through Cal Poly Humboldt, which is to also look at th 
thinking about um, how does the role of fire play and repeated fire in impacting unique vegetation systems. So that's certainly one piece. Um, we're hoping to also look at um, plots that were sampled decades ago and go back to those. And so we can order to look at change over time. So that's an important piece. And that tells us something about changes associated with disturbance, but also with climate. And, and then those could be monitoring um, locations into the future. Um, so uh, Lucy, do you want to add to that? Yeah, so there's this spatial scope, right, across the the California portion of the Klamath Mountains ecoregion. Over three summers, we're conducting 1,600 vegetation surveys for this project. Um, and then, so we have that spatial scope, but then we also have this cool temporal scope by a subset of those 1,600 surveys are revisits. Um, and so we can look at shifts in vegetation across time in response to things like climate change or fire exclusion or repetitive fire. Um, we can also look at things like um, shifts in, in, you know, shade intolerant species to shade tolerant species, you know, so in some of the high elevation alpine systems in the absence of fire are shade tolerant firs encroaching on pines. Those types of cool ecology questions can be investigated using the data that we're collecting. I know both of you, Lucy and Rosemary, have done a lot of work uh, in various capacities with climate change and drought uh, in our regional forests. Can either of you make a little prediction about what the future holds for the Klamath Mountains with climate change? Yeah, so as part of our chapter on climate, we, we looked at climate change. Um, and what I would say, it's kind of hit a few different highlights, which is that, you know, we always talk a lot, meaning collectively, that the doom and gloom of climate change. But I think what we'll see in the Klamath is change, and it's not only doom and gloom. In terms of the predictions, what we expect is maybe not uh, an average amount of change, like in precipitation, meaning like on average, we might see the same similar precipitation across the region, but we will see a lot of local variability. And that's what we see already in the records for the last couple of decades. But what we know we're going to see is more compressed wet season, meaning fewer months um, than the historical record have had of rain and that the precipitation is likely to come in fewer storms, but those storms will be very intense. So that means that we will begin to see more flooding in certain areas and, and peak storm flows. So although there may not on average be differences, we're going to see a lot of variability and including year to year variability. So more droughts, more years of drought, and then maybe wet years. And then another um, factor associated with that means that we're also with warming temperatures and warming temperatures we're already seeing and continue to expect to see that into the future is reduced snowpack. And overall that has, you know, very long-term effects for vegetation, but also our river systems and bio other biota, but also longer warm seasons. So going from the spring through the fall in a much drier, warmer will lead to a lot of changes, including a longer fire season. Well, we're about out of time, but before we let you go as briefly as you can, what, what do you most enjoy about your work on the forests of the Klamath? I would say the complexity and the dynamic ecosystems. Every time I spend time in the in the Klamaths, I 
you know, learn new things and see the landscape in new places. And I just want to highlight that this has really been an incredible project to work on in terms of the people part two. We're really a, a, a really great working team. And that's really, really fun. I like uh, working in the Klamath Forest uh, for how wild it is. Uh, it always is amazing to me, you know, California, you think maybe some people think of it as so crowded and populated, but you get out into these wilderness areas and um, it's just so open and wild feeling. And I like to think about being in the, you know, this conifer diversity hotspot and that it's almost like you're going back in time, back to, as Michael dubbed it, kind of the the conifer heyday. So thinking about, oh, is this what the conifers were experiencing, you know, 65 million years ago? It's kind of neat to 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 feel like maybe things haven't changed that much. I mean, there's change is the only constant. Things are changing, but it's sort of neat to think that these conifers have been able to eke out in existence here for a deep time, and that you know, just to think about that time scale is kind of fun for me. Well, Lucy Kerhulis and Rosemary Sheriff from Cal Poly Humboldt, uh, thanks so much for joining Michael and I to talk about your work on the Forests of the Klamath. Thank you. We really enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks to Cal Poly Humboldt professor in the Forestry and Wildland Resources Department, Lucy Kerhulis, and her colleague in the Department of Geography, Environment, and Spatial Analysis, Rosemary Sheriff. Michael and I are now joined by his co-editor of the Klamath Mountains, A Natural History, Justin Garwood. Justin grew up in the Klamath Mountain region and is an environmental scientist for the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. Justin joins us to talk about some of the incredible diversity of wild creatures found in the Klamaths. Justin Garwood, welcome to Blue Dot. Thanks for having me. Well, I'd like to know, uh, first of all, when was your first experiences in the Klamath? How long have you been there and how long has the Klamath been a part of your life? I've lived there since before I could walk. Uh, I grew up in um, a small town in the eastern Klamath, southeastern portion called Lewiston. And uh, for the first 18 years of my life, uh, that's where I lived and, and played and, and learned on my own um, and with others, uh, but not in a formal sense, but more of just imprinting on the landscape as a child and growing up in that place. Uh, you know, it was really a, a unique place to grow up as a child. It was remote and wild. And uh, I, yeah, just, I have a lot of memories that of, of just learning things through watching and experiencing, but not having a formal scientific background. Yeah, Lewiston's a really pretty place. You're, you're lucky to have grown up there. Yes, indeed. It's sort of an interesting place, though, Justin, because it's, you know, it was basically this, the town formed because of the building of the dam. And then that obviously affected the fish populations of the Trinity River in the long term. Um, but you've, you know, you've grown to really understand all these deep relationships that, you know, abiotic factors have when they drive the biotic diversity of the Klamath Mountains. And you went on to study Cascades frogs um, and you've been doing so for 21 years. Would you tell us a little bit about your graduate work in the Klamath Mountains and, and what you looked at? Yeah, so I, I had a unique experience uh, back in 2000. I volunteered on a 
it was called a high mountain lakes research team to survey um, amphibians and fishes and reptiles across the Klamath range in the subalpine zone. And I needed some experience. I was just getting into biology. I wasn't college bound out of high school. So I, I really felt like I had to work harder to uh, become a biologist and have a career. So I volunteered for this effort uh, back in 2000 and I fell in love with uh, the Klamath mountains through a lens of science and and natural history and and having deep time in the mountains to learn things firsthand um, having that learned and lived experience while doing a job so i started um finding patterns and and that year and and fell in love with the the, the project went back for two more years and i really uh, spent three years up there three summers um surveying for long periods of time and, and you know i live more in the mountains than i did in the front country so uh an amazing period of of uh just deep uh immersion and uh after that i went to graduate school uh, i had an opportunity to work on cascades frogs uh, their spatial ecology which means the study in their movement patterns across the landscape and um again more deep dive into into life history and and studying those critters uh in a remote location in the trinity alps and there you know i spent four years on that field work i was having so much fun most people try to finish their masters in two to not go broke <laughs> <laughs> i ended up working on it for four years just because um i felt like it was just magical and and um and, and i've never let it go i've still helping with others are helping as well um, some really good friends and I have kept that study together for 21 years now, which long-term monitoring is really rare, uh, especially these days when, you know, science is a lot of it's um, short-term funding and, and short attention spans. Uh, but we've held this together with duct tape and bailing wire, and we've learned an amazing amount of um, things about uh, Cascades frogs. And now it's your job, your full-time job, right? I mean, you are environmental scientist with CDFW and you get to continue this work. I think that's pretty awesome. Yeah, it's it's kind of come full circle. I I had a, you know, I've kept this long-term study going, but now I've come back in a new capacity to resurvey all of the habitats that I was surveying as a volunteer over 20 years ago. And now I'm leading that effort to catalog how things have changed up there in 20 years as it relates to non-native fish distribution, the sport fish populations we uh, put up there for recreation, at least the agency has for the last 100 years, uh, as well as um, the impacts of climate change on wetlands. And when you look at like the Klamath in general, as far as the, the biodiversity of the animal kingdom, what are some of the unique aspects of like the habitats you find, the microhabitats that create that incredible diversity in the Klamath? Well, it's it's all layered, right? Um, it all starts with geology. And then, you know, you have immense topographic relief across the mountain range. Uh, we have a high density of rivers, which creates um, barriers and also opportunities for some species to move but also, like I said, barriers for others. Uh, we have lots of microclimates given the, you know, the, the elevational gradient uh, and being in proximity to the ocean. Patterns of vegetation built on top of that also drive uh, species distributions as well. So it's a, you know, the, it's always been known as this temperate hotspot for biodiversity. And to really understand it, you got to bring all those elements together, you know, how the, the abiotic, 
drives the biotic um, diversity. And the last element to this is time and is deep time. Um, you know, the rock in the Klamath is upwards of 400 million years old um, on the east side, uh, but it's been through major transitions over just eons. Uh, and it's older than any of the landscape around it. So it's been this arc of, you know, it's biodiversity because of all those features. Let's take a short break, but stay with us. When we come back, co-host Michael Kaufman and I will continue our discussion about the Klamath Mountains wildlife with Justin Garwood. Michael and Justin are the co-editors of the Klamath Mountains, A Natural History. I'm Dave Schloem, and you are listening to Blue Dot. Welcome back to this special edition of Blue Dot, as we conclude our two-episode look at one of the most biodiverse temperate mountain ranges on Earth, the Klamath Mountains of Northern California and Southern Oregon. Co-host Michael Kaufman and I will continue our conversation now with Justin Garwood as we look at the wildlife of the Klamaths. So let's let's dive into that that deep time and the, and think about some animals in the Klamath mountains. And I, and I know there's some fascinating stories cause I co-authored the or co-edited the book with you, but uh, is there, maybe we could start with amphibians. Um, is there a, a cool ancient lineage that you'd like to tell us about? Absolutely. Uh, amphibians are a, a diversity ambassador for the mountain range. Uh, it's one we often highlight alongside conifers and butterflies and, and obviously the plant diversity. Uh, we have 26 species in the Klamath Mountains of amphibians. That's 20 salamanders, six frogs. And uh, they, you know, it's more diverse than anywhere else for a region this size uh, in the U.S. Um, besides uh, the Southern Appalachia. I mean, we have more species in the Klamath than we do in the, in the, the Pacific uh, Northwest combined from Montana all the way over to um, Washington and down to California. So it's really special. Um, you know, it's hard for me not to mention all that before I give you uh, an ancient lineage. Uh, one one animal uh, that really is the star of ancient lineages uh, for amphibians is the coastal tailed frog. Um, it's uh, basically the basal lineage of, of all of modern frogs. Uh, they separated from modern frogs millions of years ago. And um, they have lots of primitive characters, such as um, more vertebrae uh, than than modern frogs. They don't have eardrums. They have a lot of um, things we see in fossils. So I like to call it a um, you know a living fossil. And uh, there's only two species in North America. We sh uh, they're split by the the Cascades Range. Um, so our coastal tailed frog uh, is really special. Just to give a little context, it's uh, it's separated from its nearest relatives. These this genus of frogs uh, called Leopelma that live in New Zealand, and they separated 180 million years ago. So imagine your closest relative is 180 million years separate from you, thousands of miles away across an ocean too. That's amazing. Yeah, it's a really it's it's when Pangaea split up. Basically, is when they. They diverged. So uh, that animal is really special, but it's also really hidden, just like a lot of amphibians. And um, their their diversity is often overlooked because 
They have very specific, um, you know, habitats they live in and they're only available during wet periods. Obviously, amphibians have to breathe through their skin, so they require moisture uh, to survive. So uh, a lot of people don't realize that. And, and I, it was great to highlight this in this book to really highlight this amphibian diversity because, um, like I said, they're, they're often cryptic. And we have many different species or, or different lineages in the, in the mountain range that are cryptic. And you mentioned butterflies, and we can't, of course, go through all the right. insect life of the Klamath, but maybe you could hit some highlights. What are some interesting pollinators, for example, that we find in the Klamath? Well, there's, you know, we have a, around 120 butterflies. Uh, at least those are what have been described by, by modern science. And around 600 moths, too. Let's not forget the moths. <laughs> um, but you know what's neat about the the local diversity in moths and butterflies and 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 bumblebees. Um, let's leave that for a second. We have twenty five bumblebees, which is ten percent of the world's two hundred fifty species. All these are pollinators, and these pollinators are often have host specific plants for their larvae. And you know, Klamath Mountains have over thirty five hundred um, taxon of plants. Um, you know, it's thought that a lot of the, you know, animal diversity is is based off of this, the plant diversity. And these are two cases where that seems to be a, a, a common theme. Also, we've been talking a bit about uh, caverns in the Klamath. And uh, th- my daughter did a lot of work uh, when she was with the Forest Service surveying life in caves. What are some of the interesting critters you find there? So caves are offer, you know, a great uh, window into cryptic diversity. Um, you know, these species hide it in plain sight. Uh, I think we cataloged five different cave districts in the Klamath Mountains yep. um, from Oregon and through California. And um, they've produced many recent, you know, discoveries from Western science. Um, and there's certainly more to come. The Troglaraptor was described in 2010. This is a, an entirely new family of spider um, uh, that is f- family, genus, and species. It, it's it's a new family, which is is pretty it shook up the, um, the arachnid research, uh, you know, <laughs> when that came out, uh, and that was near Grants Pass. And that was a, a caver that found that animal. Um, and then, uh, the, the Graham's cave scorpion comes from a single cave in Shasta County and, and, you know, troglobite scorpions are rare. Uh, and that's only from a single cave and how many caves exist that we don't know about. So, um, yeah, there's, there's, many neat things that we highlight in the book related to caves. Awesome. Well, uh, let's talk a bit about fish. Um, you mentioned, of course, in the high country, there's a problem with non-native fish that mm-hmm. can prey on amphibians and be a real problem. But let's talk about the fish that do belong there, the native fishes, the wild wild native fish. There's some really cool uh, anadromous fish in, in the Klamath. Yes. Uh, so the, the Salmonids in general um, are they're a flagship group for the Klamath mountains because we have such an amazing assemblage of rivers. It's, it's got a really high density of rivers uh, throughout the mountain range that are intact. For the most part, there's lots of legacy issues. Of course, Um, we're going to see, you know, the largest dam removal in in the world's history, which will really help the Klamath fishery, uh, at least in the Klamath river basin. But a lot of other streams are are relatively intact and have their estuaries intact, uh, unlike many other rivers that have some on it. So we do have four core species. Uh, we have coastal cutthroat trout, steelhead trout, 
and then uh, Chinook salmon and coho salmon. Those are we have a, a few other visitors, but those are the core. And uh, you know, in the book, it was fun to to think about. Uh, you know, the that's not a high diversity, but but what's diverse in salmonids is their life history diversity. That is how they express, you know, how they live in the environment and and how they adapt and that local adaptations. And when you account for uh, species and, you know, the age at smolting, the age of maturity and run timing uh, across those four species, I came up with over 30, like, describable life histories across those four different species. And what that means is, is the, you know, the Klamath Mountains uh, provide, um, you know, a place for 30, over 30 life histories to exist. And I think you know, you go south of there, um, that is just, it's, it's much lower. And, and often in places north of there, it's much lower. So again, like all of those layers I was talking about what make the Klamath Mountains special and biodiverse, um, it also is expressed not only between species, but also in what, in that life history diversity that um, is expressed across the range. Well, let's uh, wrap this up by looking at some of the uh, bigger creatures, the mammals, and, and we can also touch on birds. Um, what are what's some of the uh, other than the the usual, you know, mountain lions and deer and bear, <laughs> which we know are up there. I've I've encountered mountain lions up in that area many times, but uh, what are some of the interesting mammals to you? Uh, you know, there's about eighty one species in the in the Klamath Range, uh, and it it's got a high mammal diversity. You look at you know, diversity maps, uh, the Klamath Mountains really shine for mammals. Uh, and, you know, some of the animals that I, you know, there's the charismatic uh, megafauna, of course, but, you know, one one critter that, that I really dig is the the mountain beaver, Aplodontia rufa. This animal is is basically the last species in, a, in an ancient family that separated from squirrels like 40 million years ago. And it's not a beaver. It's a it's an ancient rodent that uh, burrows and and kind of it's funny. I just saw um, some I was getting a Christmas tree uh, with my kids and we found a colony of them at like 6000 feet a couple weeks ago. And they were still active because there wasn't snow. And they what they do is they collect plant material and they'll put it at the base of their burrow and let it dry out. And then they bring it in and they stack it and store it. And so they can survive all winter. And they were actually what they were caching at the time was uh, a species of oak called deer oak, and it is an endemic plant to the Klamath Range. Um, but that was fun to experience with my kids and to see them active. So that's one animal I, I really dig. Um, I'm really captivated by uh, Karen Rice wrote our wrote, she was the lead author on the mammal chapter among others, but Karen is a researcher with um, chipmunks. And there's four species of chipmunks in the Klamath Range, and, and three of them are separated by rivers. So rivers are, uh, seem to be some form of um, historic barrier. And that is surprising. Um, and uh, so that's another group that really fascinates me, their biogeography. It's still a bit of a mystery that Karen is trying to unravel. And um, those are two of the groups of mammals that that I get excited thinking about because it's you know, speaks to to not only ancient lineages, but also biogeography, uh, which is the story of among lots of things in the Klamath Mountains. 
And then what about birds? Uh, there's uh, lots of different yeah. kinds of birds in the Klamath. Uh, same thing. Which ones? Like, are there a few bird stories that you know are particularly interesting to you? Absolutely. Uh, so yeah, there's about 240 expected birds. Uh, so it's not an incredibly diverse place for birds like it is on the on the coast. Um, but uh, among that, you know, birds really. Uh, their their diversity is really based off of the vegetation patterns. And one thing that, that the Klamath book brings up is oak woodlands. And, you know, these are from valley floors all the way up to subalpine chaparral. And each one of those different oak communities has uh, a very unique assemblage of these birds. So, um, you know, there's 12 species of woodpecker in the Klamath range, which is remarkable to me. Uh, one species that I really... Um, really enjoy is the Clark's Nutcracker because it has this, um, it lives in this the very high subalpine and that's, you pretty much have to hike to find it. And up there, uh, this bird, it's it's got a mutualistic relationship with uh, white bark pine, which only grows on the very tips of the highest places of the peaks, which Michael uh, I'm sure has brought up. Uh, and basically this, uh, this, this tree species is dependent on the 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 nutcracker to open up its cone and disperse its seeds and all of these uh trees have been planted essentially by the clark's nutcracker that relies on them for food so that's one species that really just really blows my mind as far as um you know how it impacts the landscape okay well to wrap this up i got a question kind of for both of you um you were co-authors on this magnificent natural history, the Klamath Mountains, and working together with all of the different authors and scientists and, and first first peoples in here. It's just a, a astounding, epic undertaking. Uh, what what are some of the things you really enjoyed along the way uh, producing this book? So we'll start with you, Michael. Yeah, well, I... <sighs> I mean, to be honest with you, the, the one of the greatest things to emerge from this book was Justin and I's um, bonding. You know, we like really grew together over this time. Um, we kind of, once the book was published, we were both a little sad because we weren't emailing each other every day. <laughs> but, uh, but just, you know, learning too, learning from Justin, you know, I mentioned um, is particularly the fish chapter for me was eye-opening just to, to all the deep dive that he did. Uh, he didn't even get to bring up Pacific lamprey. And, I mean, super fascinating story. Or the ghost sturgeon of um, uh, Shasta Lake, you know. So there's all sorts of cool things that I never knew about that Justin brought to my attention. But all the other authors, too. It was just really fun to find that that passionate niche that each of them had and then let them um, explore that niche. And, and then we all tell those stories together. And I think, for me, the stories of the natural history of the Klamath Mountains – is really the most important part because that's going to be what gets shared. And um, when things get shared, it leads to better understanding and better stewardship, better caring for this place that uh, we call home. Justin, what about you? Man, it was uh, quite the adventure and it was a wonderful adventure. It's one of the funnest projects I've ever worked on. And I say that sincerely because a lot of the times these projects can be stressful um, or things don't work out. Uh, we persevered as a group of 34 authors uh, with Michael and I kind of trying to curate that. Um, and I was just, I was really, uh, it opened my eyes to to the amount of knowledge out there from all, all the different people we brought to the project. 
um, and that came through just kind of organically to the project. And what I realized that that Michael and I could not have written this book to any magnitude that it is, you know, as far as the, you know, how much it's mountain range without bringing in all these subject matter experts and having them tell the story of, um, you know, things that that they are they're experts on or they've spent their life working with and learning. So that really opened my eyes. And and what what I think this project represents is like it's a new starting place for people to experience this um this mountain range and it man it really gets people up to speed on and i i I don't i don't see it as like okay it's done it's really a starting place for people to understand this this place is very complex but going into it now um you know they're gonna you know they're gonna be they're gonna be in good hands and, and be able to like take it and run with it so yeah i guess my that that's probably like the 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 icing for me is just you know all the collaboration and learning from other people. Well, Michael Kaufman and Justin Garwood, uh, editors, authors of the Klamath Mountains and Natural History. Thanks for taking us on this tour. Uh, it, it's such an extensive book, and yet there's so much more to learn about the Klamath Mountains, as you just mentioned. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks, Dave. I hope you enjoyed our special two-part look at the Klamath Mountains. When I was in my early 20s, more years ago than I care to think, I loved solo backpacking for a week at a time into one of my favorite places there, the Marble Mountain Wilderness. I had many amazing experiences, but one that really stands out was the night a mountain lion visited my camp. There was a full moon, and there, standing about 15 feet from my tent, was a very large cat illuminated beautifully by moonlight. It was gorgeous and, of course, a little scary, but I just used my lowest, calmest voice to tell the cat to be on her way, and I guess she got the message and headed down to the lake to get a drink and then disappeared into the night. The wilderness nature of the Klamaths is something truly special. Thanks again to our guests, Cal Poly Humboldt professors Lucy Kerhulis and Rosemary Sheriff, and environmental scientist for the California Department of Fish and Wildlife, Justin Garwood. And very special thanks to our guide and co-host for this two-part look at the Klamaths, Michael Kaufman. Michael and Justin are co-editors of The Klamath Mountains, a natural history from Backcountry Press. You can get this amazing book and start or continue your explorations of this incredible mountain region at your favorite bookseller or online from backcountrypress.com. Blue Dot is a production of North State Public Radio, a service of Cap Radio in beautiful and talented Northern California. We're distributed by PRX. If you want to revisit, share, or check out past episodes, you can do just that on our website, mynspr.org. And while you're at it, subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode on our website, the NPR One app, or wherever you get your podcast groove on. Our theme music, Big Wave Dave, is by Matt Schiltz. Blue Dot is engineered and produced by the maestro, Matt Fiddler. And a very special hello to our new listeners on KHSU on California's North Coast. We hope you enjoy all of our programs now and into the future. I'm Dave Schloem, and for all of us here, I remind you there that from deep space, we all live on a pale blue dot. <laughs>